BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old School Grit, New World Ideas, Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You know who wins on a day like today where the average is seesaw back and forth, now eventually closing up 171 points? S&P gaining 0.22%, NASDAQ advancing 0.08%. You know who wins? The giant hedge funds who treat stocks like playthings, flitting in and out at a moment's notice. Oh, this is a rough environment for individual investors who prefer to own stocks, not rent them, because the hedge funds are in control. They come in every day and make decisions based on only a single factor. Right now, it's the price of oil, which itself is almost entirely hostage to the trade talks with China. Oil declined today because there was no news about China, and no news is bad news. So the S&P got hammered from its highs in the morning before rebounding later in the afternoon when oil, which was going down, did a U-turn. Yep, today was one of the more ridiculous examples of the daily stranglehold. These financial hooligans, yes, I call them hooligans, but they, the strangle they have over the entire stock market. The whole market surged at the opening bell for good reasons, uh, mostly because four big cap companies that are representative of a lot of different industries, including three Dow stocks, reported some incredible numbers. Buyers flocked to, to, to buy those stocks, and then the pin action reverberated all through the entire stock market. By 9.51 a.m., the Dow was up roughly 250 points. The S&P gained 0.8%. But then oil, which had been meandering idly at the opening, suddenly took a vicious turn for the worse, dipping more than a dollar. And you know what happened? Soon after oil went down, yes, of course, the S&P plunged with it, Dow following in its footsteps a bit later. At the nadir of the oil battle, the hedge fund hooligans had sent the S&P into the red by as much, look at this, this is really incredible, by as much as, well, it was up earlier in the day. That drag was so powerful, it caused the Dow to drop nearly 100 points into the red, despite the spectacular earnings from three of its members. This was a breathtaking decline. It was totally linked to the price of crude. Because during this period, and I monitored everything, during this period, nothing else happened other than oil going down in price. So when oil rebounded, as if by magic, the next thing you know, the averages came back. 
Yeah, repealing the whole decline and then some. Can you believe this? Now, this kind of action infuriates moi. First off, 90% of the companies in the S&P 500 actually benefit from lower oil. Their stocks should be going up, not down. When the price of crude drops, well, that's good. It makes a mockery of everything investing is supposed to be about. You know what really galls me, though? The hedge fund hooligans don't even know anything about the companies they trade because they're all part of some S&P basket. Not even trying to identify the companies that can deliver fabulous results. To them, stocks are ears of corn, and they all pretty much look alike. Ooh, look at that, Pennsylvania Silver Queen. That's an odd one. Yeah, that's why days like today can be so discouraging to regular investors. But don't despair. Longer term, these day-to-day gyrations don't matter. Longer term, stocks behave a lot more rationally. When oil plunged to the 20s in early 2016, it turned to be a major positive for the entire stock market and, of course, the economy. Cheaper oil helps everything from freight costs to plastic discretionary and consumption. Wow. Okay. Most companies are going to be winners from lower oil prices, and their stocks will be winners, too. Their gross margins will expand, but you've got to be patient wait for the quarters. Shorter term, though, the hooligans will always win because you simply can't marshal the buying power to take the other side of their sell trade. You don't have the money. And even if you did, the Chicago-based futures blitz so quickly into the New York-based stock market, they go so fast it wouldn't do you much good anyway. So don't try to fight these hedge funds on a daily basis, day to day, where they are at their strongest. Fight them over the long haul, where they are at their weakest. Some of these firms need to make money every day or maybe hour, every week, every month, every quarter. Their clients will leave if they don't. But you don't need to win every day. You can afford to take your time and pick at the stocks of high-quality companies that deliver amazing results, including ones that do better when oil goes lower. How do you identify these long-term winners? It's easier than today's confusing action might lend you to, lead you to believe. We got four standout reports today, four reports that astounded me with their strength. Now, when it comes to these individual results, we know that the traders who are in charge of the market minute to minute, they don't give a hoot or a fig. Now, I'm actually not sure what a hooter fig means, but my wife, Lisa, says it to me all the time, usually about many of the views that I have when I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. But often these hedge funds, uh, they don't give a hoot or a fig about the companies, and they don't even know the symbols. But longer term, it absolutely matters. It matters that IBM, Procter & Gamble, United Technologies, and Comcast, parent companies network, all blew away the numbers. I liked everything I heard from IBM when reported last night, as Katie Uberty from Morgan Stanley said it was really the first, well, you know, best clean quarter in ages. I mean, it's clean, okay? There were no, no hair on it, so to speak. Think that, all right? First, the company's making major strides in its hybrid cloud strategy. That's where they make it easy to integrate a private on-premise cloud with a public off-premises one. So many companies still need to migrate to the cloud that it's a huge market IBM is beginning to make real strides in. Uh, by the way, it's also helping the healthcare industry with some blockchain, or really some good blockchain help. Meanwhile, IBM's older businesses, which have been bleeding profusely, have now staunched most of the blood. I think the company's in terrific position for the consumption of the merger, a consumption of the merger with Red Hat, which will give IBM a real leg up in its cloud business. No wonder the stock pole vaulted at 8%. Don't forget, it did have a weak third quarter, but it made it all back this quarter. It was quite impressive. Then Procter & Gamble shocked the market with a gigantic earnings beat, coupled with terrific guidance. So many divisions have turned positive. Your skin and personal care grew in the teens. Fabric and feminine care, high single digits. Family care, oral care, personal health care, mid single digits. These are incredible figures, people. Each of Procter's top 15 markets experienced organic growth, with China up 15%. 15%. I thought we were supposed to be at war with them. 
India up 16%. Japan up 9%. Who'd have thunk it? Best of all, Procter's organic e-commerce sales increased by nearly 30%. That's why the stock valued almost 5% today. And I can see it going up another quick five points like this when everybody upgrades it tomorrow. How about United Technologies? Insanely positive with results and guidance coming in substantially better than expected. Led by Aerospace, where Pratt & Whitney gave you a gigantic 22% organic growth. This company spent $10 billion developing a disruptive aircraft engine, the first real innovation in ages, frankly, and it sold more than 1,000 of them, which is stupendous. Hence why United Technologies saw its stock shoot up 5%, and yes, it too has much further to run. Finally, Comcast's subscriber count and its cash flow both grew much faster than anticipated. Companies disruptive technology. See a theme here? Particularly the X1 platform that lets you watch TV on all your screens brought on a huge flock of new subs. Best of all, the Sky acquisition. It already looks like it's giving Comcast a real boost because so much of Europe is underpenetrated and there's very little competition in many of these countries. The U.S. is pretty much tapped out, which makes it all the more amazing that Comcast had so many new customers here. But Europe reminds me of the U.S. when our country was still dominated by old-fashioned broadcast TV. Comcast racked up a 5% gain. And like the other three winners, I bet it's got more room to run. And we told members of the ActionLearnsPlus.com club that they should keep buying the shares of this charitable trust name. Uh, will oil or the companies that report win tomorrow? We got good numbers from Lamb Research, great numbers from Xilinx tonight, could propel the semis, but oil is a much more powerful undertone. Bottom line, on a moment-to-moment basis, this market may be controlled by traders who only seem to care about the price of oil. It's why we sold off this morning. It's why we bounced back later in the day. But over the long haul, the earnings of individual companies do actually matter, which is why what we heard of from IBM, from Procter & Gamble, United Technologies, and Comcast was so encouraging for the future of these great American companies. Mark in Florida. Mark. Uh, hi there, Jim. Uh, I want to thank you for um, all the great advice over the years. Um, I like that quote, uh, the banks will lead us out of the abyss, which I'm hoping they do. Yeah. Uh, I've been buying Key Bank. Uh, I started buying it at 2010, and, uh, 2010 when it had dropped to 2010, and I've been buying it as it dropped further. Last time I bought it was at 1385 with an average cost of 1771 I know their earnings per share fell a little below expectations, but their revenues were good. What do you recommend doing now? You know, I went over the key. Cor- well, sometimes what I like to do is, is uh, read the conference call without seeing the stock so I can make a judgment myself. I read the key. Call. I thought it was quite good. I thought the key did a good job. I've since saw the stock down big. I think the stock was wrong. It's since bounced back. I want you to hold a key, and I want you to reinvest that dividend. Let's go to Matt, and thank you for those nice words. Matt in Virginia. Matt. Jim, it hurts me, but I'm going to give you a big Chicago Bears booyah. Well, you know, uh, what can I say? A uh, doink, doink booyah. <laughs> yeah. All right. My question is, what's your take on lumber liquidators? I sold all why do we need lumber liquidators? Look, first of all, why do we need to go there? Second, Home Depot and Lowe's are struggling. Why don't we just buy Home Depot? Big buyback. I, uh, look, I, I know we're all drawn to these slow dollar stocks, but and I also know, by the way, how hard this industry has become, but I do like Home Depot. Hey, let's go to Everett in Connecticut while we're still working here. Everett. Hi, Jim. I was going to say booyah, but I think I'm going to say hoo All right. I was invited to be on your Salute to the Veterans oh. show and want to say thanks again. I want to say thank you for serving. Terrific. You got it, sir. Hey, when I was on the show, I asked you about Monster Beverage and how the share price was demolished after the arbitration case was disclosed. Right. With Coke, yeah. It was during the last earnings call. I listened to uh, Investor Day webcast on the 17th on the, of this month. Yes. Very little was mentioned except the negotiations were ongoing and more to follow in quarter two. Yeah, you're right. So uh, my question uh, for you, Jim. Yep. 
is with the price of the stock rising now and a stock repurchase plan in place by Monster, should I have my own stock repurchase plan in place? Uh, you know what? I didn't like that call that much. Um, I don't like the fact that hey, James Quincy's the greatest guy in this Coca-Cola guy. I mean, you can't make. By the way, there was a 515 interview with him that was stellar this morning. You should go replay it. I say this stock is too dicey. Why not buy the stock of Coca-Cola? Quincy's doing a good job. All right, now listen to me. On a moment-to-moment basis, this market is controlled by the price of oil. How stupid is that? But over the long haul, earnings do matter. Man, tonight, angry New Orleans Saints fans are targeting the NFL with losses, boycotts, billboards after a stunning missed call by officials who kept the they, look, they kept that team out of the Super Bowl. I'm explaining why the market could learn a thing or two from the uproar. Then the idea that Apple should buy Epic Systems caused an epic amount of discussion, and Twitter went nuts on it. So we're revisiting it, and I'm telling you what I learned. And, of course, I'm turning in tonight's homework. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Resourceful small business owners know how to get value from the purchases they already make for their businesses each month. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with benefits and features, like four times membership rewards points that automatically adapt to your top two eligible spending categories every month on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. So you earn more where your business spends the most. Plus up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible business purchases at select shipping, food delivery, and retail subscription merchants. And with flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business and access to 24-7 support from a business card specialist, you can continue to run your business with confidence. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Enrollment required. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. I almost never hear anyone say this, but man, I wish the stock market was half as well regulated as the NFL. In football, when a ref bungles a call like we saw last weekend against the New Orleans Saints, the whole world seems to go up in arms. Such a glaring mistake that fans question the very mornings of the game. There's an immediate outcry for better officiating, instant replay, for new rules, for anything, anything to make it so a clueless ref can't prevent a great team from going to the Super Bowl. If only people cared that much about stocks. If only we had a similar outcry about the rules of our market. Unlike the NFL, which cares about its popularity and its reputation, the people who run the exchanges, for one, clearly couldn't care less. Otherwise, they'd do something about the erratic way stocks can trade. There's so many blown calls in this market, no one does a thing. But the exchanges are far from alone. (laughs) 
in their disinterest. The government has abdicated responsibility entirely, and the companies themselves seem oblivious to what happens to their own shares. Meanwhile, the seats in the stock market stadium grow emptier and emptier every time there's a blown call or a snafu or some crazy action that makes investors feel like the game is rigged against them. Take the Christmas Eve massacre, an event that, in retrospect, you know, it started to look a lot like the flash crashes from May 2010, August 2015, February 2016, and February 2018, all of which served to undermine our collective trust in the stock market, in the asset class. The swift nature of this decline in a couple of hours, as well as the four occasions before, had far more to do with the lack of officiating than with anything related to the fundamentals of, you know, the actual companies that the stock's supposed to reflect. When stocks went into free fall and thin volume the day before Christmas, that should have prompted officials at the exchanges, maybe Treasury, SEC, test what the heck happened here? How could stocks crash so hard on an illiquid day where there are so few players? The answer is pretty simple. The refs have let not just one play, but the whole game get out of hand. And now it's the fans, meaning you, the investor, who gets blasted to kingdom come. Think about it. There was no economic reason whatsoever for the flash crash of May 2010. I was on TV when it was happening. I watched it, knew that there were no refs in the field to stop the play. I was on TV in August 2015. I could see that the machines couldn't adapt to an 8% decline in the Chinese stock market, of all things. Not us, but China. And a faint whisper from one Fed official on some serious satellite station on Friday that few had ever heard of that maybe there's a need for raise interest rates. The trashing in February 2016 had something to do with the oil going to the 20s, uh, which turned out to be great. The February crash from last year, some stupid VIX traders who were caught leaning the wrong way and didn't have enough capital to do anything but sell S&P futures. And the half day before Christmas, what was that crash about? Sure, uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin's boneheaded attempt to reassure the markets that our banks still had liquidity by calling the banks, something that no one was actually worried about, you put it in our head, didn't, uh, definitely didn't help. But I bet the true culprit will be related to some fund that had to liquidate before the end of the year, and there just weren't enough buyers on the other side of the trade. Maybe we shouldn't have opened that day. I mean, geez, we have to make money every single day. Now, why do I care about this? Because after each crash, there are fewer and fewer players who trust the asset class, deservedly so. Yet nobody with any authority seems to really care about this. These other crashes all occurred when CD rates weren't competitive. But listen up. Listen up, leaders of the universe who run the stock market. That's no longer the case. CDs are great. I think there should be an investigation of what happened to the American stock dream. How do we let the mechanics drive individual investors away from the market? Why the heck do we care more about football than we do about our retirement funds? For now, nobody seems to be upset other than me. Maybe they'll start to care when the seats in the stock market stadium are almost empty. Mark my words. That's what will happen if we get a few more of these events. And we know that these events are inevitable in a world where the rest have disappeared and the players run wild without a care for what happens to the individual investor. Crack pack blocks, horse collar, uh, tackles. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, helmet to helmet with you, usually without a helmet. Listen, if if we want a capitalist democracy, The stock market needs to actually work for ordinary people, not just hedge funds. When regular individual investors can't participate in our greatest engine of wealth creation, let's just say something has gone very, very wrong. Stay with Kramer. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Something happened last week that was actually, for me, very exciting as the longtime host of Mad Money. Uh, I mean, last week, we ran a piece about what Apple could do to breathe some life back into its moribund stock. Investors are so obsessed with slowing iPhone unit sales that they can't appreciate the real story here. Apple's fabulous ecosystem fueled by innovation that's giving them a rapidly growing service revenue stream. So I suggest that maybe Apple should try to turn the iPhone and the Apple Watch for a small monthly fee into universal repositories for your own electronic medical records, empowering you. And as a first step, maybe the company should try to buy another company called Epic System. That's a privately held company that's one of the two leading players in the industry and by far the best to breed. Turns out that story was a lot more provocative than I actually anticipated. Let's just say we received a lot of feedback here, much of it very negative, frankly, both about the idea and about Apple. Although other reactions were, let's say, constructive. I mean, look, this is a big sample of it. Frankly, it's kind of exactly what I was going for, though. The whole point was to start a discussion, to figure out how Apple stock can get its mojo back and possibly put its technology to work to revolutionize and innovate the healthcare industry on behalf of you, the customer. So tonight, I want to circle back to this issue, which surprisingly caused more hoopla on my Twitter feed than any other story we've done since we started the show. We've learned a lot in the past week. It's actually, play every day, there's new stuff. And I think it's worth getting deeper into the weeds here. I'm challenging you to continue to focus on this notion of Apple innovation, empowerment, and healthcare. Okay? First of all, we aired this piece last Tuesday, and the very next day, CNBC's own Christina Farr, she broke the news that Apple's in discussion with some private Medicare plans about ways to use the Apple Watch to help seniors. The new watch includes features like fall detection and heart monitoring, which are especially useful to senior citizens. Basically, the Apple Watch could help patients catch various issues early, resulting in better outcomes with fewer costly visits to the doctor's office. Second, the very next day, Johnson & Johnson announced a research study where they're collaborating with Apple, okay, using the watch's electrocardiogram function to monitor heart patients. J&J is testing a new app to see if it can improve outcomes for people with atrial fibrillation, okay? J&J CEO uh, Alex Gorski explained it could improve the health outcomes of 33 million people living with atrial fibrillation worldwide. This is a condition that can lead to strokes and other devastating complications. In the U.S. alone, it's responsible for roughly 130,000 deaths and 750,000 hospitalizations every year. Plus, Gorski seemed to indicate that this could be the beginning of a beautiful relationship with Apple. I think this is a huge development overlooked by everybody. One more sign Apple's serious about healthcare and its innovation and what it means for you, the customer. 
Also last Thursday, Apple CEO Tim Cook did something unusual for tech executives. He called for more government regulation of tech companies. Simply an op-ed for Time magazine, Cook argued that we need comprehensive federal privacy legislation. And in the meantime, he wants the FTC to crack down on companies that buy and sell your data. Here's my favorite line. I'm quoting. Right now, all of these secondary markets for your information exist in a shadow economy. It's largely unchecked, out of sight of customers, outside of consumers, regulators, and lawmakers, end quote. Basically, Cook says we're living in an episode, a giant episode of Black Mirror. Now, last week, I told you Apple would have an advantage in the electronic medical record space because when it comes to handling your information, they're a lot more trustworthy and unhackable than most tech companies. We've gotten a lot of pushback on this point, though, too. Many people don't want to trust Apple with something as sensitive as their medical records. Listen, I get where this is coming from, but I think this criticism is way off base. Sooner or later, some gigantic tech company will make itself into a repository for medical records that's compatible with many different software systems used by doctors and hospitals. I mean, I bet you Alphabet's coming up with something like this. But, you know, Apple seems like the obvious and logical choice. How many other tech CEOs are begging the government for more regulation on how they handle your data? Besides, we already trust Apple with our credit card information and our family photos and even our totally theoretical not safe for work photos. Apple's not a Facebook in disguise. It's not looking to sell your data to the highest bidder or any bidder for that matter. Now let's get to some more reactions, because this thing got really visceral. Some people wonder why Apple would even want to get into the messy electronic health records business. But that's the whole point, people. Right now, this industry is a mess because the companies involved have no incentive to cooperate. So your hospital system may not be able to communicate with the system at your doctor's office. Look, I don't care how great Epic is. If it can't talk to the other systems, it doesn't matter. This system right now we have is wasteful. It's inefficient. There's a huge unmet need for an outside player to come in and create a universal repository for your healthcare records, like, say, the iPhone or the the Apple Watch. That's the opportunity. Plus, two weeks ago, Tim Cook explicitly told us he wants Apple to become an integral part in healthcare, in part to break the company's reliance on iPhone sales, but also to empower you, the customer, and innovate. Take a look. Our business has always been about enriching people's lives. And as we've gotten into healthcare more and more uh, through the watch and through other things that we've created with research kit and care kit uh, and putting your medical records on the iPhone, this is a huge uh, deal. And it's something that is very important for people. We are democratizing it. We are taking what has been with the, the institutions and empowering the individual to, to manage their health. And we're just at the front end of this. That's what an epic buy or a CERN buy would do, empower you. Now, other critics pointed out historically, and I quote, Apple isn't good at the enterprise, end quote. Boy, I heard that forever. But that's why I want them to buy a company like Epic, which already has great software for the enterprise. I know it's not for sale, okay? What Apple brings to the table is its skill at appealing to the consumer, in this case, the patient, in this case, you. What else? Some people argue that such a big combination would be difficult to integrate, especially when we're talking about two companies with famously closed operating systems. I honestly don't think this is an issue at all. Apple has more resources than any other company on Earth, and Epic Systems isn't even that big. I wouldn't be surprised if it cost them much more than $20 billion. Apple's sitting on $123 billion in cash. Plus, remember, these are the guys who crushed the disjointed music industry with iTunes. How much more important is this? It's your health. Now, perhaps the single most common piece of feedback we got was the dismissive answer that Judy Faulkner, the founder, CEO, controlling shareholder of Epic, would never, ever, ever, ever sell. Okay! In fact, Faulkner apparently has provisions that will keep Epic private via foundation even if she retires or passes on. Fair point! Now, maybe Tim Cook can persuade her to sell. Maybe not. 
let's not miss the forest for the trees here. Epic doesn't want to sell. OK, fine. Then Apple should go buy their biggest competitor, Cerner, a publicly traded company worth $17 billion. The point is that they could revolutionize the electronic medical record space and give their own service business a major boost. If Apple wanted to, too, it, it could buy Cerner, give its software away to every hospital and doctor's office in the country, and then charge you $10 a month to maintain your health database. They can give it away to the companies that already have Epic. Just give it to them and say, listen, we want to standardize this on your watch. Who wouldn't pay for that to avoid heart failure or a stroke? Remember, the Mayo Clinic just said that they need to come up with a handshake between their system and people that make these watches, therefore being Apple, and they could save 7 million people from probable heart failure just by giving them this. Oh, yeah, I forgot it's not an innovation. It's kind of like, a, I don't know, like a psycho, a Timex. Finally, while we get hundreds of responses, I want to call it the single most thoughtful response to our suggestion, which came from a fellow by the name of John Lynn at Tech Guy on Twitter, the founder of Healthcare Scene, which is a network of healthcare IT blogs, which is a whole world that I just discovered. Man, was it cool. Let me read this one in two in full. That said, if Judy, and that's the owner, of Epic was to sell. Apple is an interesting acquirer. Apple has created more trust in how it handles data than most technology companies, and that's something that would be valued by Judy and Epic. Is it enough? Probably not today. I think Judy still trusts herself and Epic to protect their clients' data 1,000 times more than she would trust Apple to do so, end quote. And he was kind of negative about the idea, but he was so thoughtful and constructive, I wanted to make that point. really liked it. Look, this is the key. If you're running an electronic health records company, Apple is the ideal partner because they're trusted by consumers and want you, not the hospital or the doctors, but you to be empowered. And even if Epic's not interested, someone else might be. At the end of the day, the electronic health records don't work the way they were supposed to. Something many of my critics refuse to admit. You know, I think it is plain as day. Pretty obvious to anyone enmeshed in the system. It's not just you can't transfer data directly from one company's software side system to the other. As another viewer pointed out, this also means that you can't effectively track outcomes to measure what works and what doesn't because you have all these separate silos of data and there's no incentive for any of the existing players to create a universal silo. I think Apple could solve this problem by creating a universal repository for your health data on its devices, particularly the watch, where this could save your life. You wear it everywhere, something happens to you, boom, they scan it. You go to a doctor. Instead of filling out all those damn forms every time, boom, you scan it. What's the matter with that? Bottom line, one way or another, Apple is uniquely positioned to revolutionize the electronic health records business. They could make an acquisition like Epic, yes, if Judy would sell, or CERN. They could build out their own system. They could focus part purely on the iPhone as a repository of data. There are a lot of ways to approach this, and I think any of them would be a win for both patients and for Apple shareholders. And it's a huge cudgel against those who claim that Apple no longer innovates. That's hogwash. If coming up with a brand new device that can save millions of lives isn't innovation, what the heck is? Sean in California. Sean. Hi, Jim. Uh, I got a question about Facebook. Sure. Um, the past two weeks, it's been on an uptrend, and it finally broke over 152, but it couldn't hold. But I've noticed in the past few days that there's been significant selling. And I'd like to know your take on whether it's a buy, hold, or sell going into earnings. I show my travel trust owns. We got a huge game. Should have sold more when it was higher. We did sell some. You know what? When I saw the action, I'm going to be really honest today. Well, no, that I'm not dishonest the other days, darn it. But Facebook stock was down three and changed. At one point down four today. Somebody, here's what my, well, what Karen Kramer would say. Hey, Jim, somebody knows something that you don't know. She was always right. 
Apple's position revolutionized the business of electronic health records. There are many ways to approach it, and it could be a win for both patients and shareholders. Stop being, start being a little more constructive on Twitter. Much more mad money ahead, including an under-the-radar biotech that's working to disrupt the global market for cancer treatments. Expected to reach, by 100, reach 150 billion by 2020. I'm revealing an under-the-radar biotech working to disrupt it when I turn into tonight's homework. Then, it's a leading industrial player that works with some of the world's most recognizable brands, but sparks are flying in this stock thanks to a war on Wall Street. Is this the opportunity to amp up your portfolio, plug in the profits? And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Time to play Stump the Chump. Every time I get a question about a company I'm not familiar with or that I haven't been following closely, I always admit to being stumped. And then I circle back, do the homework, give you a considered response. You deserve that. After all, this is a self-proclaimed, most interactive show on television. But it's also not a show where, as I used to say at Goldman Sachs, that you cuffed the answer. All right, so let's get to work. October 29th, Jordan in Florida. Yeah, that long I've sat on this homework. I'll I'll get an F for uh, when I handed it in. He called about a company called Smart Global Holdings, SGH for you, home gamers. And I said, I need to do more digging. Smart is a tiny semiconductor company that makes specialty memory, storage, and hybrid chips. Think dynamic random access memory or DRAM components. Think flash basic building uh, blocks of modern devices. In short, it's a commodity chip maker that's supposed to many of the same vicissitudes as Micron. Now, we've actually talked about Smart before in a homework piece about 13 months ago. At the time, the stock had recently come public and exploded higher. I told you there were some red flags here, including the departure of the CEO and a partial exit of Smart's private equity sponsor. And the fact that the commodity semiconductor space is a boomer bust business. In the end, I gave you permission to speculate on this point if you really liked it, but also warned you got to be real careful. Don't want you to get burned. As it turns out, Smart was a very smart speculative trade, but a dumb investment. Over the next three months, the stock rallied over 70%, and if you bought this one on my recommendation, I sure hope you're ready to register. Since then, the stock has plummeted. You need to take your profits while you still have them. Contra Gordon Gecko, greed is bad. So what went wrong? Simple smart makes commodity chips, as I said. And over the course of the last year, we got a supply glut in Flash and then DRAMs that crushed the entire group. Like I always tell you, this is a boom and bust industry. The same thing happened to Micron and Western Digital, which is down to, down about, to about a third of where we talked about it. Just two weeks ago, Smart reported a mixed quarter with downright putrid guidance. They're talking about earning 73 to 77 cents per share. Wall Street was looking for $1.32. The stock has continued sliding ever since. It just made a new 52-week low today at 21 bucks. You could say Smart is cheap down here selling it four or five times this year's earnings, but only if you believe that they can make the earnings estimates, which now seems unlikely to me. My view, if you want to bet on a rebound and flash and DRAMs, I'd much rather stay away from Smart. Bet on a higher quality company, maybe like Micron, but you know what I really want you to own? Lamb Research. Reported tonight, stock's up big, announced a monster buyback, but if you take a look at where the stock is versus where it was, you'll know that Lamb is dirt cheap and even up 10, 11, 12. I would be a buyer of Lamb Research. Much better than smart. All right, next up on November 6th, Jim in Massachusetts called about Athenix, ATNX for you home gamers. I said to get back to him. Hey, you know what? This is another tiny company that I've talked about before, uh, before, but don't follow regularly. And that's the problem. When you call in, you stump me because I haven't checked up on it. That's what I said when you asked. Athenix is a development stage biopharma name that's focused on coming up with new ways to fight cancer. They have a few very early stage programs, but their lead drugs are both in phase three clinical trials. The last phase before you can get FDA approval. 
Phenix has an oral chemotherapy agent. It's called Oroxyl. This is an old drug they've repackaged to be taken by mouth. And it seems to have a better safety profile than the injectable version. Their other lead drug is a treatment for actinic keratosis. And that's a precancerous skin condition. Now, in October 2017, I told you that you could speculate on Athenix, but only with money you could afford to lose, because these kind of biotech stocks are inherently very risky. You sometimes see them in the morning. You'll see the stock will be like down 10 from 13 to 3. That's what we're talking about. Now, at the time, Athenix was a $17 stock, and it's an $11 stock. Not good. To be completely honest, I don't have a great read on the science here. But I can tell you that there was a lot of positive commentary from the analyst community late last year after Athenix held its annual state in December. Stock has plunged from $20 last July to 11 now on very little news, so I don't think there's that much risk here. However, like I told you last time, early-stage biopharma plays are always a dicey proposition. So if you want to speculate on Athenix, again, you should only do it with your discretionary mad money portfolio, not your retirement portfolio. It doesn't deserve to be there. It just doesn't. Mad Money's back in. Right. It is time! It's time for the light round clearance! We're at one of those teams. It's time for the course. Let's talk with Zedno. My staff is playing your planet sound. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the light round clearance. We start with Cesar in California. Cesar! Hey, how you doing, Jim? Couldn't be better. How about you? I'm doing great. Go Birds. Go Birds. Go Birds. Can I get your thoughts on PG&E? too hard for me. I mean, anyone who says that thinks that they know what's going to happen, I think is dreaming. So I'm going to say stay away. How about we go to Abdul in California? Abdul. Hello. How are you doing, Mr. Kramer? I am doing okay. How about you, partner? I'm doing awesome. Thank you for taking my call. Really appreciate it. Of course. For many years, I listened to you. This is the first time I'm calling you. Okay. Yeah. My company is the Chinese Electrical Car NIO. Oh, Neo. Yeah, okay. Well, look, that is a total dice roll. I'm not recommending Chinese stocks at six bucks. I mean, less non-retirement money, you want to roll the dice. Fine. I prefer to go to the casino, but thank you for your inquiry. Tom in Colorado. Tom. Kramer, booyah. Booyah. Yeah, you know, I think at one time you made a very good comment about the CEO of Visa. Oh, yeah. What do you, you think about stocks? Well, look, I think Al Kelly's doing great. I like the previous guy, too. He, uh, he did a good job, too. But here's the problem, okay? Of the fintech stocks, Visa, I prefer MasterCard, then I prefer PayPal, and then I prefer Visa. Now, PayPal, I really like. It's in my travel trust, but MasterCard's gotten a little cheaper right now. Hanging on to some PayPal. But they're all, look, are they six or a half dozen? I think Visa's terrific. Let's go to Richard, New Jersey. Richard! Jim, love your show. Listen, I have uh, a Caterpillar for close to a year, and I'm down a big chunk on it. The earnings comes out Monday. Is it, is it, is it, is it I, look, it yields 2.6. I doubt it's going to go to 3%. I think Caterpillar's going to do fine. It's caught in this whole web of China trade talks. China isn't that important to them, although it's important. I, I like Caterpillar, and I, but I would buy a little ahead, but then I would wait to see what happens because this is one wild market. I want to go to Will in, Ted- in Texas. Will! Hey, Jim, how's it going? It's going okay. I got a big dinner tonight with a, a company I'm interested in. I, I recommend it on the show. Find out more about it. What's going on? Well, I've been looking at Tenneco's stock, and it's down a lot. Oh, keep looking. Don't aisle. pull the trigger. We got so many other stocks that are that are trying. I don't want you to touch auto. I don't. I mean, auto is, 
the kiss of death in this market, even a good one like Tenneco. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. To own the industrials or not own the industrials? That is the question. When the Federal Reserve announced that they were willing to strangle the life out of the economy to stamp out inflation back in October, the whole industrial cohort started rolling over. These are companies that rely on a strong economy to hit their earnings estimates, so anything that might cause a slowdown will put their stocks through the meat grinder. Then the Fed eased up at the beginning of the new year. Jerome Powell started talking about the need for patience when it comes to raising interest rates, and that should create a more benign environment. But now we're getting lots of data suggesting that the rest of the world's in bad shape, with China experiencing a severe slowdown that's spreading to its largest trading partner than the European Union. And of course, the government shutdown isn't doing us any favors, is it? So how do we approach the cyclicals here? Those are the dirty smokestack industrials or even the heavy uh, tech manufacturers that are very much hostage to the business cycle. I want you to consider the curious case of Emerson Electric, EMR for all you home gamers. This is the archetype. This is a diversified industrial conglomerate that spent most of last year roaring higher, creating big gains for its shareholders, which at the time included my charitable trust, by the way. Uh, I, I, I mentioned this one. You can follow along with all of the trust moves before we make them by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. And this was a good one. But wait a second. Emerson is what I like to call a manufacturer's manufacturer. They're a major player in industrial automation, fluid handling tools, climate control systems for a wide variety of sectors, but especially the oil and gas business. Now, before the whole stock market started rolling over in October, Emerson's stock had a terrific story to tell. After years of lagging its peers, the company rolled out a major restructuring effort in 2017. It worked. As long as the economy kept humming, chugging along, Emerson's stock kept humming, chugging along, going higher. Even after the president declared his trade war on China earlier this year, right when interest rates were surging, the stock was able to rebound, surging to new all-time highs at the beginning of October. We bought Emerson for the Charitable Trust in late April. That was pretty good. Uh, and early May, shortly after we interviewed CEO Dave Farr, right here on the show, when the stock was trading in the high 60s. By late September, it had run to 77 and change. So then we had to start ringing the register because nobody ever got hurt taking a profit. You know, that's one of my precepts. Uh, the trust was up more than 15% in Emerson by that point, And I started worrying about what Powell might be up to. I just wish we had sold more at those levels because we ended up selling the bulk of the position with a minuscule gain in November. Hey, better late than never. Emerson plunged from 79.70 at its peak. Okay, look at this. On October 4th, down to 50. Oh, hi, Jay. Um, Well, Jay caused it. Right here is when he spoke. Okay, I mean, hey, I like that. Jay, 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 and then Jay. And right there, we decided to have a more a real trade war. Okay, where things are really hurting. So even though Jay caused this decline, we still were not. And that's a third. By the way, it's a thirty point five percent decline. Thanks, Jay. Next thing you know, the China trade talks really caused problems. Now, part of that weakness was because of the macro. The fact that the Fed was planning to tighten aggressively, well, here we go. Let's, you know, the bouncing ball, right? Look at that, man. Aggressively, the trade war with China had no end in sight. And the global economy was clearly slowing. Keep in mind, Emerson gets 11% of his sales from China. 
but roughly 20% of its growth. Okay. Nevertheless, it didn't help that Emerson reported not so hot quarter in mid-November. That's results were mixed, with the company delivering a solid earnings beat on lighter than expected sales. However, the guidance for the next quarter of the next year was weaker than anticipated. Worse, David Farr sounded cautious in the conference call, talking about, well, he talked about the tailwinds turning into crosswinds thanks to the slowdown in Asia and Europe. And, of course, a lot of that was code for, whoa. Trade war. Lots of trade wars. But what about now? Well, since the uh, Christmas Eve lows, Emerson's stock has rebounded more than 12%, climbing to 62 as of today, where it sports a 3.15% yield, even though the outlook for the global economy is pretty suboptimal. The Wall Street fashion show is divided on Emerson Electric. In fact, at the beginning of the year, we got a pair of dueling analysts. Credit Suisse upgraded the stock on January 3rd, the same day that RBC Capital downgraded it. Why do I point these out? Because I think these are great teaching experiments. These analysts face off. They tend to be very enlightening. Uh, it's kind of like the Hegelian dialectics, if you took that class. You pick the best bullish thesis against the best bearish thesis, or the antithesis, and hopefully you arrive at a better synthesis. Or if you want a more modern reference, think of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, or you know, maybe The Hunger Games. Now, before we get into any specifics, you need to know that both analysts did cut the price targets because of, yes, the trade war. Um, Credit Suisse went from 74 to 70. RBC took theirs from 68 to 61. RBC's bull case is up 12 points from where the stock's currently trading. The bear case is down $8. So you might think the risk reward is favorable here, but let's hold off on that judgment, though. First, what's the bull case? Emerson has a lot of exposure to the energy industry. 25% 25% of the revenues. Credit Suisse argues that the oil and gas cycle still has steam, even with the price of crude down here at $52 a barrel. They're predicting an oil bottom in the second quarter with continued investment in midstream, downstream, and liquefied natural gas facilities. Boy, those are all businesses that Emerson dominates. They also like the outlook for the petrochemical industry. That's another major customer. At the same time, though, Credit Suisse believes that Emerson's top-notch management can continue to find ways to bolster the company's margins while also boosting the earnings via more smart, bold on acquisitions. Plus, based on the enormous amount of free cash flow this company's throwing off, they expect $2.4 billion. This analyst believes the stock is too cheap to ignore. Well, that sounds pretty compelling to me, right? But listen to this bear case, the bear case from RBC. This one is more focused on the big picture. RBC points out that the outlook for 2019 is very uncertain. They expect Emerson's Emerson Automation Division to slow from 10% organic growth last year, somewhere between 5 and 8% growth this year. The oil and gas industry, they expect a downturn in capital spending. Now, that makes sense to me. Emerson's, you know, think about where oil's going. Emerson's commercial heating, ventilation, air conditioning business gets 10% of its sales from China. You got me? Okay. And that's not good considering the Chinese slowdown and, of course, the continued trade war and the pile of container ships on this graph. Now, management has said they're going to dial down on making acquisitions, which means fewer chances for Emerson to boost its earnings. Now, Emerson has talked about breaking itself up. <laughs> Just a second. Separating the automation biz from the commercial and residential segment after Dave Farr retires. But that luckily won't be until 2020 2021. And even then, RBC argues that they only see about 8% upside based on the sum of the parts valuation. I don't know. Where do I come down? Look, Credit Suisse is right that Emerson is an incredibly well-run company. It's why I'm using it as the archetype, okay? And Dave Farr's a real straight shooter. He's terrific. But, man, I think RBC makes some very good points about the macro environment. A lot of things need to go right for the stock to make sense. We need a deal with China. We need oil prices to rebound. We need the global economy to reaccelerate. 
And we need J to not be this J, but to be this J, okay? If Emerson were genuinely cheap, all right, if it were really cheaper, like it was uh, when, you know, after, just a second, after J, after J became converted to the positive side, I feel more confident. But it sells for 15 times next year's earnings estimates. It's a slight premium to the average stock in the SP 500. Here's the bottom line between the oil exposure and the China exposure, I think it's too soon to buy an industrial like Emerson Electric, even though I like this company so much, even as it's one of the best of the best. It just swings too much with the on again, off again trade talks. I recommend staying on the sidelines for now. Emerson reports on February 5. I hope they tell a good story, but hope is not part of the equation. Stick with me. Look, weigh in on Twitter. The watch is important and it's innovative. Even if you don't agree with me, go ahead, weigh in. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Made Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.